0: Hello coaches, today I speak with Coach Dick Gould. Coach Gould is truly a college tennis coaching legend and probably needs no introduction. As the head men's tennis coach at Stanford for 38 years, his team's won 17 NCAA championships and he holds a record of 776 wins and 148 losses. He has coached 10 NCAA singles champions, 7 NCAA doubles champions, 50 All-Americans and 9 players who reached the top 15 in the ATP World singles rankings in this podcast we discuss recruiting fundraising time management and many other lessons he learned along the way what i found most amazing was that despite all of his team's accomplishments he never took the future of the stanford program for granted as you will learn through this conversation he worked tirelessly to endow every aspect of stanford tennis so that future coaches would never have to worry about the sustainability of of the tennis programs. He is truly one of a kind, and I believe college tennis is much better off because of his involvement in the game we all love. I hope you get something out of this interview with Coach Gould. Coach Dick Gould, thanks so much for coming on the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast.
1: Well, David, thank you. It's a pleasure and honor for me, and and nice to have you back in the country. Uh, what a, what a great coup for the ITA to have <laughs> you on board.
0: Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> that means a lot. And and obviously, when when I started this podcast a few months ago, uh, I was trying to think about uh, coaches that I, I'd love to to interview for this podcast and share their stories and their wisdom with our coaches. And you're obviously uh, on that on that list. So I'm glad we're getting the chance to do short, this today. Yeah,
1: listen, could be a short interview. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I doubt that somehow, but I'm going to, I'm going to get straight into the questions here and, and, uh, look forward to digging in, uh, into more of these matters with you, uh, here over the next hour or so. That sound good. Well, that's great okay so I think a lot of people especially uh, coaches probably from my generation and, and maybe slightly younger think that you know Stanford men's tennis was always this powerhouse but when you took over in the late 1960s um, USC and UCLA were way ahead of you so h- how did you go about recruiting some of the top tennis players not only in the country I mean those top player American players at the time were also top players in the world um, and and you know convince them that's Stanford was a viable option for their tel- tennis talents.
1: Well, it didn't happen overnight. I I I I played at Stanford, and and uh, my coach, who was there since World War II, and a total of about sixteen or seventeen years, had never finished out of the top ten. I think the average finish we had was six or seven. I know one year when I redshirted, we finished as high as two, but be, that was because SC and UCLA were on probation <laughs> uh, for instance, by rule violations for other sports, and so uh basically we're definitely uh to be in the top five was was rare for us but we we're right right in the second five pretty consistently and and i always felt that we really had the potential with the environment we have here physically and everything else so interesting tennis had you possibly do better than that and i went ahead and got my master's in five years played my fifth year actually and uh, in education and i Started teaching a couple of years at a local high school and then a new junior college opened up and I hopped on board at Foothill Junior College and we did well there and won a couple of state championships. And in the meantime, I was serving as a club pro during those six years total. And so I got to know the area pretty well as a teaching pro and all the top juniors that I we had at one time, 20 or 25 from my own club, which was really a club that wasn't a, per se a tennis club, was a, a great achievement, I felt. And then all of a sudden, my coach retired at Stanford. So Foothill was a great job, and I probably would have stayed there forever. Uh, junior colleges in those days were a great places to work; they were pretty supported and funded, and and I loved it there. And it was my work was all tennis, and I was doing the work at the club in the summer and on weekends, and it was a nice combination. But I just couldn't turn down the opportunity to go back to my home mater, and I went back there and told the AD during my interview. I really felt that that uh, we could win the national championship, and in those days, Stanford uh, Stanford was really good in a lot of sports at the end of World War II, and that was a different world. And in general, and and uh, had not, but had not won a championship in any sport. It was men's only in those days. We had eight sports. Had not won a championship in any sport since 1953 in men's golf. And then the first year I came in, our second year, we won one in men's swimming, 1967, and. Uh, so there was a long drought there where Stanford wasn't doing anything athletically. And and that was the environment they came into. Uh, the excuses amongst our athletic department and everyone on campus were alums and everybody. It was pretty much a defeatist attitude. The general attitude was, well, we, we can't get the... Enough student athletes into college. They just aren't smart enough, or or you can't be intelligent and be a tennis player or an athlete in general. At any at, together, it just doesn't work. And and this was a rampant uh, cancer really throughout our department. And rationalizations and excuses were were the norm. About the time I came in, a fellow named John Ralston came in as football coach. And John is one of the most positive guys I've ever met. And about the year we were starting to get a good in tennis, took us to two Rose Bowls. So I kind of think about the fact that, that John overcame this with a positive attitude, and I came in with a very positive attitude, uh, contributed to the success of has had since, which has been phenomenal in, in all sports, really. And, and I'm very proud of that, and, and a little bit I might have had to do with that. Changing attitude, but, but when we came my, my first year, I was cocky and I thought, well, you know, we won the state championship a couple of times in junior college. And the guys I had there, my top players, went on. And one was a quarterfinals against the boys at USC, another one was around the 16s at San Jose State. Another, you know, we had some good players there and, and developed some good players. And I thought, well, this is not going to be that hard. Well, we had never been out of the top 10 since World War II in my first year. We finished 16th in the country. My second year, we finished 33rd. And I've been telling people, well, you know, we're going to do this thing. We can do this. And all of a sudden, they were laughing at me. And they laughed at me anyway and said, what do you think? What are you thinking about? And my third year freshman in our conference, the Pac-12, Pac-8 in those days, still could not play uh, in, in uh, on the varsity team. It was only a freshman team. Uh, there was only a freshman team, but they could play in that third year in the NCAA championship. The conference didn't have control over that. It was first year a freshman could be eligible nationally, and not all conferences let them play that first year. Uh, but for the national championship, were eligible. And my team that year, after being 16th and then 33rd, I didn't know that many schools played country. I <laughs> uh, offered programs. My third year, we're, we're, with a mediocre schedule, were nine wins and 12 losses. Hmm. And so we weren't going anywhere very fast <laughs> and, uh, uh, but we recruited a little better, a little better each year. We're getting a little stronger and, and uh, so I took uh, we had a couple of good freshmen, uh, our good sophomores in the team were they were they were getting uh, freshmen, but they couldn't play in any of our dual matches. Mm-hmm. So for Angel Blaze in those days, it was an individual tournament. You could play four right. singles and two doubles. And I took my as my team. I took five freshmen. I didn't take anyone my <laughs> varsity, and we finished eighth in the country.
2: Mm.
1: And then I thought, okay, we have a lot of depth in this freshman team. We're building well. Uh, wait till next year. And uh, and all of a sudden, Paul Girkin, my my top player, came to me and says, Coach, uh, you know, I didn't get a chance to play this year. Freshman couldn't play doesn't look like anyone's coming in this next year. My best buddies, Dickie Stockton, Bobby McKinley, uh, Brian Gottfried, they're all at Trinity. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're in the transfer. I go, oh, geez, we just started to get this thing going, and my top player now is leaving. Well, about that same time, in 1969, I had approached the 69, 70, 71, I think it was, or maybe it was 68, 69, 70. I seventy, I'd approached the USTA. Because I, I didn't play, there was no pro circuit then. I didn't play as a pro uh, when you got through to the summer, you took a job. Uh, you might have played some some of the circuits as, a, as, a, as an amateur, but there really was no future in it. Pro tennis didn't, open tennis didn't turn, start until 1968, and even then it took a couple of years to take hold. So I was always working in the summer, and I was teaching tennis for a rec department, and and gradually for a little bit for my coach at Stanford in the summers, and I was loving it. And yet I, I, I was not known outside the area where I was a uh, tennis uh, a country club coach and, and uh, JFC and high school coach. So I had no reputation nationally. I had no playing reputation, although I finished as a, as a strong number three at Stanford. Not a pretty good team.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, no one knew me from Adam outside Northern California. So I approached the USTA, and they had a national junior training camp. It's called National Davis Cup Camp at that time. And it was rotated on several schools in the country. And I said, "Well, let's have it out of Stanford. We have the California State Championship in San Jose, 20 miles south of us, and then the next week is followed by the National Hardcore Championship in Burlingame, 20 miles north of us. We're right in the middle of this. Let's uh, let's why don't you guys host the camp out here at Stanford the ten days before the San Jose tournament, and then you can just stay in the area and play San Jose and Burlingame, which most of them did anyway.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I thought that was a pretty good idea. So so we hosted that at Stanford, and we really did it in a first-class manner. A good friend of mine from the club was a fellow named Ed Scarf, who was the president of Transamerica Corporation, a big corporation at the time, and and they were the sponsors of the camp, which allowed us to do a lot of things we couldn't ordinarily do because uh, the university couldn't spend any money on a camp, but um, they spent quite a few uh, quite a few pennies putting into the camp, so we could really make it first-class for the players. Barry McKay was the camp coach, which was incredible. Uh, the team coach was a high school coach named Jack Dara, who coached Eric Van Duren, who was was well-known and had coached the team in the past. The traveling coach were the players from the camp who were selected to the national team. Mm-hmm. And a team of six or eight guys, through this uh, 10 days of training and inter squad matches, uh, got all the expenses paid for the summer and got uh, play straight into the junior Wilmington draw, which is really a nice thing. So no one could afford to miss the camp because that's how they made the team.
2: Hmm.
1: So the USDA paid everyone's way out here to Stanford. I had 30 kids in the very top 16s and the 18s. <laughs> and, uh, we housed them in the dormitories and I was a camp host. So I was a glad hander. <laughs> uh, and we really did it nicely. We had, uh, American flags at the top of every fence post over 10 feet. As they walked into the complex, we played John Phillips as They came down to the court each morning. and loudspeaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we had uh, every night they went to a different club to play a feature match and and had a barbecue. We had a lot of clubs in the area and got to know the area a little bit and, and uh, went up and saw a giant game. So we a Giants game. Got into uh, the club room up there for dinner another night special in san francisco and just did a lot of things so they got to know the area mm-hmm. and they also got to know myself so all of a sudden the kids started talking about stanford a little bit and i would had some near mrs uh uh Biggie stockton come out here to high school to from new york to attend palo alto high school uh Palo Alto high school started Stanford starts late almost the first of October and high school started the first of September. So he was out here by himself and cutting him housing, which I could do in those days, a uh, friend's home grew in Pedro about a block from the high school, so he could walk to the school and he could walk across the street and join the Stanford tennis team for practice when school finally started a month later.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and anyway something happened I don't know what it was because he came to my house and I had a nice match for him and I a to barbecue the next day and next morning the place where he was living called me and said coach dicky has gone I said oh <laughs> I got dressed in a hurry and ran to the airport and they said they thought they were car door leaving, so I figured a taxi and I was only a one camp concourse in Sarnsky Airport then. So I was going up and down the concourse trying to find him. I about it because he was hiding beside one of the ticket counter desks <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and I, I reached him a couple days later and he just said he had to he had to leave. It just was hard to make new schools, girlfriends back there and we hear a practice yet. In those days you could practice with the college team, It's mm-hmm. uh, it was changed a little bit later. So Uh, That was a near miss. There were a couple of others. Uh, But anyway, Stanford, people were starting to talk about Stanford. Hmm. And so that's why uh, actually uh, Paul Gherkin and then uh, Matt Claflin, two of the top juniors in the country, and both members of the Junior Davis Cup team, the eight-man team selected at Stanford, were were, were coming here. Hmm. And so that really helped us get going. And Hmm. that was that was the key to us. We did not just hold the camp, we really did it in a first class manner. Mm-hmm. I think that started with Stanford and, okay. guys and then you stayed here for two weeks for two great months.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And, and then so, so what, what are obviously then you, you built upon those, some of those initial great recruiting classes, but, but what are some of the recruiting traits that you think are, are ageless that, that stood you well throughout your coaching career that, that still apply to coaches today?
1: Well, I think I think the first thing you have to be straight up with everybody. And uh, I was one of the first guys that made home visits. I don't think too many made them in the late 60s, mid 60s. Uh, but I, I thought it would help to get somebody to get to know the parents and family a little better. So that when, they sent, when they sent their kid to school, 1,000, 2,000 miles away to have a little more comfort. Uh, I thought those visits were really, really important. So if I felt it was going to uh, make a difference in the end, I didn't didn't want to just fly somewhere not knowing whether a guy was going to be admitted to Stanford or not waste that money. I didn't have that money for that Mm -hmm. uh, in abundance. So I had to be very careful where I went. I I had to be sure I was to always go visit the last, make it the last visit uh, when they came out to visit Stanford if I decided to fly him out here. We didn't have in those days. You weren't admitted to Stanford until April first. John McEnroe was an example. That we to April first before we heard from Stanford. Mm-hmm. The United was actually admitted. Yeah. That has since changed, but in mm-hmm. those days, we had to wait past it when everyone else knew what they were going to do. To just hold on for Stanford, and that was a challenge for me. Mm-hmm. But I think I think the big point was to answer your question was that I think that to try to get to know the family and and really uh, convince them that you had the. Interest of the young man, and at heart, uh, above all, and that it wasn't just a tennis thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then in those days, at first, I was trying to sell guys and being a part of the first, the first thing that we had something that was a good challenge. I felt we could do it, but we, we needed them to be here. I think this is what really appealed to Roscoe Tanner as an example
2: right.
1: uh, to be the first, to be the guy that kind of turned the program around, which in fact he was. But I think that uh, I think the biggest single thing is to be straight up with people, being honest. If they ask me a question, I didn't know the answer. Uh, I would find out the answer get back to them immediately. I know my visit to Tennessee, not to visit Roscoe, but to visit Zan Gary on Lookout Mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alex Gary asked me every question in the book what the average wind velocity was in May. I never <laughs> no thought about it. How much <laughs> rainfall we had. I, and I was surprised to find out in Palo Alto, uh, as opposed to San Francisco, Third three miles away, we had a half inch a year more than LA Civic Center, Los Angeles Civic Center. That surprised me because I'm from Southern California, it always heard we ran a lot more than Northern Cal And on and on and on. In fact, he was thinking about putting he wanted to go somewhere. Zanna never lost a match on clay, he was a great clay court player. And he wanted to uh, Zan to go somewhere we'd have a clay court to practice on. and So I was out on the track getting the uh, brick cinders and sending him an M a uh, crush brick and sending it back to him an envelope saying, is this playable? Will this work? And, uh, <laughs> and all of this. So uh, a lot of things were going on and he ended up going, he was thinking about coming to Stanford with Stanley Passereau, was my first scholarship players.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Stanley was probably going to go to UCLA where his brother was. And he said, when Zan called him, he says, and I would say I don't want to be the first, but uh, Stanley said, "Well, I'm probably going to go to UCLA." And the next day, Stanley changes his mind, calls in back, and he can go to Stanford. And- and Zan finally said one of those calls that I just committed to Rice. <laughs> so, okay. but Stan, but Stanley did come. It was my first scholarship player, first okay. scholarship player. Okay. Um, I think yeah. I think showing an interest in the players and and continuing that interest and and once you do that and continue to stay involved in the lives once they leave schools is sets a tremendous precedent in uh, staying close to the family and and and. And drawing them throughout it is critical. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, with uh, over the course of time, obviously, then you started having some phenomenal teams and and uh, such depth on on your teams as well. So, when when you'd speak with recruits and they potentially ask, "Well, wh- where am I going to play?" Um, w- would you be very honest with them in terms of, "Hey, we've got <laughs> you know we've got these <laughs> Grand Slam participants returning next year." Um, you know, how how did you go about answering that question? Question and and, uh, making them feel like they were still going to have opportunities I think to. think
1: being straight up and being honest is yeah. the most important thing of all. And 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 I think most good players want to go where they're where they're going where they're going to have competition. That was my problem at the start. No one wanted to be the first. Mm and uh but as we got better in those days we had uh no limit on scholarships i think i had eight for a number of years which became instead so of a limit before title nine and mm-hmm. um, and i had eight guys on full scholarship and uh guys like genie Mayer were playing number ten of the team <laughs> in the, or, and he became what five in the world so, oh, yeah. uh, we had one team that had uh i think uh, all six players were top hundred at some point in their career, and, mm, and interestingly, you know, this particular team didn't win the NCAA championship, but it was a good <laughs> team and were my best ever. And um, and uh, probably five, four of those guys ranked in the top fifty. A couple ended up in the top ten, mayor and Tanner. And mm-hmm. and so you know we had, but but the guys down the line in second six really got good with that practice every day. Really? And that was the point I tried to make. I never promised anyone whether they would play the team or even if they would start.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But it's the fact that uh, I felt they could really improve with what we had here. And that's that was the whole point. And that seemed to be the like kid wore out. I think to sustain recruiting there were three things that were really important to me. Uh, number one, they, they had to enjoy their Stanford experience in general. That was critical. They had to enjoy the school. Number two, they had to feel they got better while they were at Stanford whether they were starting or not mm-hmm. and number three they had to do it when they got out of Stanford went on the pro tour and once those three things started to happen uh, then it was pretty much I think only lost one player from then on who was offered a full scholarship I, I think every player in the country who might have been admitted applied wow. I, don't think, I don't think I missed any who didn't apply yeah. and admission was not easy believe me
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then out of that number anyone who was offered a full scholarship everyone came except John Ross Went to SMU, uh, where Dennis Rawls, his coach, mm-hmm. they just taken the job to be the head coach. Right. And I don't think I ever lost a guy who was offered a full scholarship.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: Yeah, and was admitted
0: yeah so so you obviously had such a, a long coaching career but what as you were coming to the end of your career say what do you wish you could have told your 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 younger self so you, you know a young coach in Gould in 1967 1968 what would the say 2000 version of coach Gould tell the 1970
1: uh, version uh, well, a couple parts to that. First of all, I think that I was so intent on proving to myself, my own ego, after telling everyone we can do this and really believing we could do this, mm-hmm. to win a national championship that that I made everything all important. First of all, I talked about that to my first team, the team I inherited and in the first recruiting class I had. Uh, they laughed at me. They looked at me. And said, this this guy's crazy. That'll never happen here. Uh, I'm writing a book now, which is all mm-hmm. based on. Uh, quotes from these guys over the years or 40 years four decades, five decades. And um, it's it's really interesting how what, how these first guys thought about all this. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so my goal was not in line with what their goal was. No matter what I said, it they would you know, they were there to play there's no future in tennis. They were there to come out in the spring with the warm weather, take their shirts off, put <laughs> their hands, get a little bit, go back to drum out of a beer and that would be it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so their goals and my goals weren't aligned until I started getting better players and then it started to change. But even at that, I was so intent, I made everything important. Guys, we have to win this match. This is a critical match. And everything was all important throughout the whole year. And then all of a sudden, nothing becomes important. And I feel, I think I put a lot of pressure on them, undue pressure on them. When we finally came through and won the championship in 1973, after being very close to it in 1972, I thought i died and gone to heaven and, <laughs> and uh, actually became a better coach because it got the monkey off my back. My own ego was satisfied. I had proved we could do this and mm. I didn't ever for everyone another one, but I just proved this could be done. But my ego was getting in my way, but I was making it too important, more important, and that was making my guys tired. I think. Mm. Uh, from that point on, I rarely, rarely ever spoke about a national championship. In fact, in this book, I've asked all these guys 20 questions, pretty heavy. And uh, after that first championship, I don't think anyone said they ever heard me mention the goal of winning a national championship. It was just kind of assumed that's what we're working for, right. which is really nice a nice state to be in because you don't have to say it as a coach. They just mm-hmm. kind of accept that's what, what it's all about, and they have to play their best at the 10 of the year. They're ready to play their best or knew their best at the 10 of the year.
2: Mm. Okay,
0: so so what are maybe some of the key lessons then you you learned along the way or or what is
1: just to be sure that the team's goals are in in line with your goals and you can't force them on them. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, that if you make winning every match all important, then the important matches are just another match. And, you know, know, I think it's the season has to have a natural build to it. I think we're really good at at that. Uh, I, I I would, I I think just in terms of you have to, you have to say, you, you you coach by example, and you can't say something's important if it unless it isn't unless it's shown to be important to you. You can't say hey, we got to keep our courts clean if you're not if they don't see you picking up every little piece of paper and tennis ball can that's anywhere in the vicinity of the courts. Mm. So you know, I think I think the biggest thing you do is be yourself and and lead by example, uh, not by telling them what to do, and. Uh, uh, I think this is really, really important to young guys starting out. Don't mm-hmm. don't try to be someone you're not. You have to be yourself. Uh, you can't force your values on anybody, but if they are good values, and hopefully the parents have taught wounds to you uh, by the way you act, they'll come across.
2: Mm-hmm. Giving
1: your best, being well prepared, working hard. Uh, I don't think these guys ever saw me not working, mm-hmm. and was on the court or on something to do with our program. So, and this comes across in my. Uh, responses to my questions time and time again and i think that by example is the best way that you can instill your values in your team
0: yeah definitely and and what is maybe um uh maybe what player or team taught you the most as a coach is there anything that really stands out to you as a one particular experience that uh maybe taught you more than some other experiences have during your coaching career
1: Early on, it was the fact that that you know my goal was not in sync with the team goal, and uh, and so that took that took a while to get better players. And that be and open tennis came about where there was a future in tennis. That took a couple of years to to, to get to that point. Um, I think I think one thing that's really important is never, never, never underestimate what a player might be able to do if he's given the opportunity to develop and or even a team hmm. uh i can give you a couple of examples yeah, i please i take gene Mayer, who came into school and his brother sandy was great and, yeah. and gene was very good he had the best two-handed four best forehand ever seen it was two-handed 4 just an incredible forehand but his backhand his dad was was his coach a great coach from whom i learned a lot and really influenced my coaching uh, his dad was trying to get jenny to go from a two-handed side two hands on the backhand side to one-handed so when he entered sanford he could only chip the backhand and it really wasn't much of a weapon And he could chip it and he could lob it but he, he couldn't hurt you with it like he could his forehand but no one's going to hit the ball to his forehand mm-hmm. <laughs> so that slowed him down a little bit but i thought he was pretty good. finally his excuse me uh he did turn pro senior year, but by his junior year, he got to be number four or five on the team, and a, and a solid four or five, but I thought uh, he was playing down the line up around eight or nine, nine or 10. I thought this probably was gonna be where he stayed. Another, another fellow came in from New York also, named Jimmy Griffin. and he started literally at number, number 10 on the freshman team, and just kept playing, and playing, and playing, and I started to say to myself, this guy's pretty feisty out there. He's a pretty competitor. And finally, but the NCAA championship, uh, I made a change in my lineup. I took out a local fellow who I thought, who I really respect and liked a ton, At number six, moved him out of the lineup for the championship only for the first time, Jimmy finally had a chance to start, and his match play, and toughness really won that tournament for us back in Georgia. We are playing Cal Berkeley, and he was so, so good in that match. And then a year later, he's in the NCAA final, he played number three, but he reached the finals in the NCAAs and loses in three sets to teammate Tim Mayhott. And there was a fellow I always thought would be a player who played in the second six. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. as his team. Um, we had a, a great team in 1982 and it won the championship. And uh, one of the guys turned pro. And we have five freshmen in my top seven to start the 1983 season. Um <laughs> Uh, People ask me, they say, Well, Dick, how's this team? It looks like it's pretty young and you lost a lot of guys. And I would say, Well, it's obviously a rebuilding year and and we'll take our loss, but in a couple of years, we'll be okay. But this team won't be darned if they didn't win the NCAA championship. And uh, with five freshmen in the top seven and you uh, know, it was a good team but it was better than I gave it credit for being mm. so I think one big thing is don't underestimate they, my players and the team taught me not to underestimate them right. uh, everyone in the right condition can get better and you never know where that might lead
0: yeah. It's having the, the patience to, to stick with them. And that's, uh, I think college coaches struggle with that from time to time. I, I know I did as a college coach and I, I retired from college coaching in 2016 and, and had some, some, sp- once I had some space from it, was able to recognize some of the mistakes I, I made with players. And, um, is there any you know mistake that you made with a player that, that really stands out to you that you feel like you, you should have done something differently
1: <laughs> I'm sure they could tell you better stories <laughs> than I I was you know I, I, I based my I based my style of coaching on uh, I, I guess the team the term my guys in the book use a lot was first first strike tennis mm-hmm. and uh, putting pressure on your opponent by serving and volleying. Not even if you guys come to college as serving volleyers even in those days uh, I think I had two who came in as Pure servant volleyers. One was from Uriah, eh? Jimmy uh, grab from Tucson. He was definitely an accomplished servant volleyer when he entered Stanford, and that three times being number one in the of world in doubles for different years. Portuguese. Uh, another one was Sandy Mayer, and he was a pure servant volleyer and very, very good at it. But uh, all my other guys, uh, even John McEnroe, and even though he would gotten Wimbledon semis by serving and volleying, it the year, the year before he entered Stanford, before he entered Stanford, they all, if you didn't force them, would prefer to would stay in the backcourt and rally and just mm-hmm. outlast their opponent. So uh, my job and my contribution to them as a coach was to get them the tools, which not all of them had, to a uh, good volley, good overhead, anticipation, better second serve, to be able to serve in volley whenever I asked them, and to be able to come in on the return any time I asked them. Mm-hmm. And take it early, so to to be proactive rather than reactive in their play, and I think that was our trademark really, and and we were good at it, and I was good at coaching it. But these guys would look at me, and I, I would they'd look over at me at a big point, and I'd say, "Get to that. and you're three courts. <laughs> They're looking at me. Hey, tell me what you're, what going to do. And uh, but it worked, and and we had success doing it. So gradually, the guys started believing in it, and and it became a real big part of our play. And and the people were starting to stay back more. The the grip started being going around and they are semi-western, even western on the forehand. So that changes the the swing path and the trajectory of the body rotation becomes different the work becomes a little different with that and the grip change had probably more to do with the style of play changing than anything else and I I, I would love to see someone like Pete Sampras who was the last of the serve and mm-hmm. major and to see someone like Pete Sampras come back today and serve and at every point and, and I'm not so sure he wouldn't be affected mm-hmm. so
0: sure um, so we recently put out a, a survey to our coaches just to see some of the things that, that they're struggling with a, a little bit. And, and one of the things that, or one of the themes that kept coming through was, was time management. And you've obviously stayed highly productive throughout your, your coaching career. I mean, you're, you're excelled in all areas of your program from recruiting to fundraising to marketing um, to player development and, and everything else that goes into being a college coach. So, uh, are there any time management strategies that have been effective for you that you could share with our coaches?
1: That's, that's a great question. I think to, I think today it would be harder to do than when I was coaching for the most part, even if you were a pre mid major, which a lot of my players were, um, Jeff Abrams, KJ mm-hmm. hitton or Arthur Posnell as an example, and many others, um, you know, I would give them the afternoon of the practice off, they had a lap, something like that. But our practice started at 2.30, and we were off the court at 5, no matter what happened. And in the old days, I would do a little conditioning and maybe take my weight room, although I was not a big strength training fan because uh, I thought it wasted a lot of time for rewards to return on it. Uh, but well, I'd be the one that did conditioning and did that, and I would be sure it lasted not more than 30 minutes. And then we finally got strength and conditioning coaches and if they weren't didn't have the guys out of the weight room or off their conditioning uh, chores by in 30 minutes, I would I would sit down with them and say let's get this more efficient. we can run these guys through a cycle or whatever it might be uh, more efficiently get them out of here. I didn't want them anything more than three hours associated with tennis mm-hmm. and so I would get onto the court by 2.30 but not before and I would leave at 5 I'd always go to the strength conditioning sessions even though I might not be running them mm-hmm. just to be sure that it was moving it wasn't crab ass <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and uh, so so that was that was really uh, it, I, I didn't my, and one of my faults was that I didn't do much private work and it started almost as a habit Mm-hmm. Because when I first started coaching, I had a freshman team, I had a varsity team, and I had a junior varsity team with 12 people on each team. So I had 30 guys plus out there. How could I work with one person? <laughs> yeah. uh, or else is just, uh, just diddling around. And even when Title IX came in, and a and, well, from the freshman could play a few years later, then I didn't have to do the junior varsity bet, but I still had, uh, or the freshman bet because the team were combined, I still junior varsity. And so I still had 24 guys or so, and, and just me. We didn't have assistant coaches in those days. So I would have to run a group workout, and I got I got in the habit of doing that. And finally Title IX came about, and the women's program moved over to where the men practiced. So I, again, had my courts cut in half, and I now had six courts, so I had 10 or 12 guys, and that was it. So I could work. But even then, I didn't have an assistant coach. I'm working with one guy, I don't know what he was doing, but just during practice time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I was so used to having everything done during practice time that I wouldn't make any time outside of that afternoon block of two, two and a half hours for the guys individually. Mm-hmm. And I know that they probably would have been like that more, I just not in the habit of it. And I know a lot of them would go next door with a lot of great pros in the area, to my former players, like Jeff Irons as an example. And they would go outside for a private lesson once in a while, rather than, than do do with me. Mm-hmm. But thought also, I had to, all the rest of the day to once I got my practice. Well, I used to find my practice in that before, so that would be done. But the rest of the time, I was able to fundraise. I was able to do other things. I, I felt, you know, I coached uh, thirty eight years at Stanford, mm-hmm. and uh, I always felt that as I coached more and more, it would be easy for someone recruiting against me to say. Well, look at that guy. He's been there a long time. He's going to retire. I have Michael, which I've been there 16 years. I thought he'd been there forever. And I imagine my, my guys. I mean, I had guys my last championship team we weren't even more than winning we the first
0: championship. Right. Um,
1: and seriously. And so I felt that it was really important that I project that I was staying relevant. Mm. And I, I regret that I was not more active with the ITA administration and what the ITA was doing. Guys like David Benjamin and mm. some, there's so much of their coaching time or their time off the job to something like that. But I really felt that I could not do that and do what I had to do at school. I really felt that every four or five years, my my goal was every four or five years to do something that had never been done before and do it in such a way that would make an impact mm. and, and would be there for a long time. So that was my tax Where we four or five years, we did something that was different had never been done and we really did it well. Hmm. And I really enjoyed that part of the job. Stanford, were just giving pretty much free rein. I'd say, well, we can't do that, but if you can do it, go do it.
2: Hmm.
1: And so I have to fundraise forward and, and get it done. And, but I had that creative uh, license to do that. And it was a beautiful thing for me because I really enjoyed that part of the job. My players didn't get the one-on-one time they might have had, but they still got better. And and uh, um, and they weren't running off campus all the time for less them, Never did. Uh, we never practiced on weekends. We never uh, we would practice on the Saturday of spring break, Saturday and Sunday of spring break, <laughs> and we would practice on the uh, Saturday before we left for the NCAA championship. Was the only times we ever had a weekend practice.
2: <laughs>
1: Although we did, of course, have matches on on the weekends, especially as tennis became universally around instead of
0: just still uh, right right well that, that kind of leads me into my next question uh, do, you, do you believe that college tennis has lost this way a little bit in recent decades like what what practices are you seeing within college tennis that that concern you a little bit i mean you just talked about how you know over the course of your career how, how it has shifted and, and changed and some for the better some for the worse but but what what are
1: I, yeah. they always change I think I, think, uh, I have to congratulate the IT I think it's done a great job uh, I think you know I have three daughters who played college sport uh, one of well, a player at Harvard the captain there one a American swimmer and captain at USC and one played a year at Princeton before these got really bad yeah. so uh, my, I had three daughters who were beneficiaries of Title Nine as an example and I've always felt that was the right the right move to do my mm-hmm. first coach we had at Stanford was my wife mm-hmm. and Stanford first national championship in any sport as coach of um, the women's team. It was the then not NCAAs. It mm-hmm. NCAA took over. But uh, I was being a prop- big opponent of Title IX, but I've not been a proponent of how it was implemented. Uh, in the days when it was being founded and formulated, uh, the people leading the charge were outspoken that football being included in the formula. And that just disrupted everything in terms of equal opportunity for scholarships, equal opportunity in, in many ways. And if you take the eighty five well have more scholarships than but if you take those eighty five scholarships that the other sports didn't have and gave them to other sports that you were forming for the women, uh, something's gotta give. Mm-hmm. So the men graduated the first time down to five scholarships from eight and then down to four and a half, the equivalent of that women stay at eight. And I've always and really I've always felt that was a really if you talk equality, that's not equality. Uh, I've always felt that, um, I've always felt that if you had six scholarship fees and to put a football out of the equation, that would be the fair thing to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But there are a lot of benefits when you have a scholarship. You can have training table and, and you couldn't at Stanford unless you were, unless you have a, Soror- a scholarship. But am I going to have, when I have four and a half guys on scholarship, am I going to have a third of my team of training table and the two thirds not had that opportunity as an example. Mm. No, of course not. So a lot of ways where it affected our, our program and it's just the way it was, you know, but I d I don't think it's right to this day. I also felt if people in this and title nine were really, really true to the cause, I think Billie Jean King is doing a good job of this the Women's First Foundation, that they would have been hiring women's sports for women's for women's jobs. I know you coach women's tennis mm-hmm. and and if I were talking to a young guys starting out, I'd say coach women's tennis because there's more so there's security there. Um, uh, I, I think that, but I think that, in fairness, I think that you don't get women's coaches unless they have a chance to develop.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I really, I really felt strongly that uh, that there should be a woman coach that have the first crack at women's at, uh, women's coaching positions. Women's mm-hmm. sports, mm-hmm. and not just tennis and of everything. So I think if you're going to talk the talk, you have to walk the walk a little bit more than we've been doing. It. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's one thing uh, that was always hard for me to
2: mm-hmm. accept
1: the title line, even though I have three daughters that benefited from it and and were opponent of it. Unlike mm-hmm. how isn't men, I think that. Uh, well, question, David. Again, what was that? Was changed?
0: Well, just um, yeah. I mean, if, if we just drill down to to college tennis specifically, oh, rather huh. than intercollegiate uh, college yeah. sports, it, it just yeah, like you you talked about oh. how you know you 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 had amazing players, amazing talent. You you practice five days a week. You ta- practice in a team environment. Now it's you know shifted to where you know. The, well,
1: that's that's being the single chain. I, I know my the coach, coaches now are Paul Goldstein and Brandon. Mm-hmm. Cooper first of all, there are more kids in afternoon classes now. That that was not such a big deal when I was coaching. I think uh, professors don't want their kid at eight o'clock giving an evaluation on, on him or her at the end of the year when they've been sleeping with through class at eight. Mm-hmm. And just think up later and, and uh and sleeping in later. Mm-hmm. And nine o'clock classes aren't the norm either. Ten o'clock classes in every class. So then therefore there are more classes in the afternoon. It's harder to run get one together for a practice.
2: Yeah.
1: And, and even if you could do it, I think uh, uh, players are doing more, coaches are doing more, a lot more one-on-one work. And I don't think that's bad.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, uh,
1: but sometimes the whole team uh, doesn't practice together. And I don't think that's good either. Uh, but that also, that time commitment has also limited coaches from doing a lot of things that... That they might have done. I, I think sometimes we get too secure in our jobs. And I think I, I always ran a little scared. I thought our jobs were always in jeopardy in a sport like tennis. And I thought I better get the damn program funded mm. and empowered so that no one could diminish it or take it away. And right. I'm proud to say that our tennis program is completely endowed from the director of tennis position, mm-hmm. to the head coach position, to the assistant coaching position, to four and a half scholarships, to uh, our operating budget, the level of school less operate, and even within the maintenance endowment. I'm really wow. proud to stand for that legacy. But I could not have done that mm-hmm. when a coach giving private lessons uh. Right. uh during the day. I think the college sport in general has really threatened uh, this arms this race thing. The TV money is outrageous. Mm-hmm. I think the big wake-up call, and I didn't know it was going to be a, a virus that caused it. I thought it would be more like a big recession where advertisers would pull out. Mm-hmm. This TV money, like as an example, the NCAA has lost their biggest source of income. Two-thirds of their income came to $600 million dollars from the March Madness, the men's basketball tournaments. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot income now. And uh, and that money was distributed mostly to schools. So the school's take on that is going to be less. At the same time, the things that the student athletes can receive has increased more than just the amount of tuition you're on board mm-hmm. and board and your uh, books. So there's more expense now for each scholarship. Uh, And if we can't have this football season, that money didn't go from TV to the, uh, it didn't go to the NCAA. That money went straight to the conferences. And you have these 10 and 15 year contracts for these big TV providers. But if there's no football season,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: then you're not gonna have any telecasts and the advertisers are gonna pull out. And the money for the next 10 years that you thought you were going to have and therefore you're taking out loans and your construction projects to make your arms race, keep up with Joe's arms race next door, um, the money, you've already spent the money, assuming you're gonna have it each year for 10 years, but all of a sudden, if you do not have football season or the advertisers all leave the ship, uh, that income's gonna be gone. I think it's gonna really affect college board and I think that could trickle down and have a big, big effect on sports like tennis, right. men, and, men and women. So, and not, I wanna go back to online, not not just men's programs were being dropped to equal off the number of people in playing sport in, on both men's and women's teams. Sure. But also some of those uh, programs were as well. So, yeah. But the men, I think, stand that most to lose.
0: So what, what should college coaches be doing now across the country? How, I'd, how are they? I've
1: been running scared and trying to raise money every way I could and putting mm-hmm. it somewhere where I could build up an endowment of some kind.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And it's it hard to do. It, does, it doesn't it does happen overnight. But well, I'll tell you, I think
2: there's
1: a mm-hmm. way that we can ensure we're going to be around. And I, I if I ever made any contribution to Stanford, I would say that's the most important one because mm. it would be taken away and it can't be diminished now.
0: Right, right. So so trying to get coaches to maybe shift their priorities from potentially player development into the fundraising side really? of things.
1: Well I think you can do both. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think you can have you know you have assistant coach. now you have we't we, mm. we an assistant coach so for twenty years old coach it was just me
2: mm.
1: or before we could have one. Mm -hmm. And uh, now you have a volunteer assistant coach. I think a lot of it's how you divide that time up. But I think uh, if you want to be around, don't just take for granted that you're going to have your money there. You better prepare for the worst.
0: Right. So, what what advice would you have for for coaches around fundraising? I mean, what are some of the the things you did that?
1: Well, the important thing is to get your team involved with the community, mm-hmm. and this involves a commitment for the players too. And uh, well, we did it in several ways, and I, uh, the guys never—they they always. It, it was always a part of the program. I never say, "Okay, guys, you got to eight o'clock. Take and have this fundraiser today. Or we're going to do this with this, this country club, or this. We're going to do this or this." Uh, they just did it as a part of the thing. And, and uh, in the memory, looking back at the comments for my book, I'm putting together, these were some among their favorite memories. Mm-hmm. And you have to be a little creative. We had to think of different kinds of things to do to do this. Uh, some of them involve scholarship fundraising. Some of them involve just one on one going to see someone I felt an instant dentist. You know, I, I I think it's really important. And and my guys, a couple of remarked about this. They were really surprised and taken back to walk into our first team meeting each year, and say, "Hey guys, you have a responsibility to this program, uh, especially those of you in scholarship. I expect every one of you to become a donor to Stanford for scholarships in the future when you leave." You've got a tremendous opportunity. And those of not in scholarship, you got balls, you had medical treatment, you had uh, coaching, I expect you guys to give too. And I'm really proud that our of our fundraising our fundraising, uh, we have a much higher percentage of athletes from tennis program giving back to their sport than any of the sports standards. Hmm. And this would be more than many, but a higher percentage.
2: Right. Um. And that
1: one dollar or ten dollars gift this year could be twenty years from now thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So, don't count. someone who's in the habit of giving what they can do, things work out for them.
0: Right, right. No, my tough.
1: players, my players had to feel responsible. They had to. In mm-hmm. you know, tennis, we get so many things. It's almost take. It's almost uh, assumed that we're, we're always on receiving end. We mm-hmm. get rackets we're on the free list when we're a kid for rackets or a sponsor or something like that. You know, at some point, you got to give back, and that's a value. I thought. I think are very important for us to
0: teach anyone, our own kids and our, and our players as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Um, and, and just lastly, then, what is a question you've been asked by up and coming college coaches the most in the last 20 years? And, and how do you answer it?
1: Uh, that, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I I honestly, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) This book I'm writing, uh, I'm writing it because a fellow friend of mine who was a pretty big president of Silicon Valley, head of a company, CEO, started a company and also played baseball at UCLA's in their Hall of Fame and, and one of my biggest benefactors. And he asked me, one after he won about 10 or 12 champions, he said, Dick, how do you do this? <laughs> and I said, well, Jack, it's easy. I get the best player. And it's, it's, you know, he's been around too much in the sport himself. He says, no, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win. And I thought about it, and I, I had no answer for him, because I couldn't tell him, well, you do this, one, two, three, four, five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, when I was close to retirement, that um, Canola asked me, we Baylor, were we having a beer one night or something? He said, Dick... Uh, how many times were you in the finals that you won the championship and I had not thought about that the first years or two years I, I coached it wasn't a team championship so those didn't count but, mm-hmm. but I just got that team championship started and I went back and looked it up and we'd won we were in the finals 17 times <laughs> and won 15 team championships (laughs) and the two we lost were 4-3 to usc Mm -hmm. in 1992 and 1982 5-4 to UCLA. very close matches Mm. in fact one of my calls uh, one of my things i want to ask my players do against UCLA probably causes that match i called the wrong thing it turned out uh (laughs) wrong shot one uh but and i was very vocal on the court as a coach i i I, I knew what I wanted them to do, and that's one thing about college coaching—a great advantage. You can coach while the players, you can talk, you can
2: mm-hmm.
1: coach while the match is going on. And I was—I would drive my players crazy at first because it took a long time to get used to it. But I would tell them where to serve, what kind of serve to hit, what to do in return, how to play the point from the backcourt. Uh, I was playing the match with them, and I loved that part of it. And uh, they didn't like it at all for a while. They used to it so I was working. And then all of a sudden I had a convert, but, but, uh I I couldn't ask that question. So that's, that's why I wrote this book. I sent, I had 200 guys who are still alive. They played for me on the JVs or first one in team or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm in good contact with them. and, and so I sent them all 20 questions and, um, do we have a culture? How do we deal with egos? How important is that? Uh, mm-hmm. Did you feel relevant? Which is an important question for are number mm-hmm. 12 on the team. Uh, things that pertain to any team, athletic or, or otherwise. And I had uh, uh, 162 guys answer these questions. And oh, these wow. questions took a good two to four hours to answer. And some were short. Uh, probably 10 of them were pretty, you know, mm-hmm. two or three comments, but most of them answered it entirely. And I had a wealth of information. This is, I started this two years ago. I'm just hopefully told, sending off the final copy to some editors now I looked at uh, this weekend. But it's been a great work in progress and a yeah. purpose of the book to find out to try to this answer, answer this question, where, uh, how did we win? Which is probably the question I get asked the most, how do you do it? <laughs> and I can't tell somebody... <laughs> But now I'll be able to give a better answer, and I'm amazed at the things that people felt were the secret sauce. It's all over the map, mm. and there's no one answer.
2: Right.
1: So that's probably what I'm asked the most: how to do this. And okay. So.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. When when is the book hopefully going to be released?
1: I, I don't know. Okay. Uh, trying to organize 600 pages of comments from these guys on 20 questions. Mm. I, I had to first of all turn those into chapters, and I had to cut up. Right. His answers, pare them down, pare them down, pare them mm-hmm. down. And, and uh, uh, I, you know, I have to get a publisher, but first of all, have to someone edit it so I can take it to a publisher. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's where I hope to send off this weekend. Of so, were, were there yeah. any
0: themes that emerged that were big surprises for you?
1: I thought the concept of trust was really important trust mm-hmm. in the teammate, not necessarily liking the teammate, but trusting the teammate will always show up to play his best, mm-hmm. trust in the coach uh course, trust in them when you are hitting team rules, as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well. I could say no drinking, but they're going to leave practice, with turning. the attorney, and first thing to do is go to the attorney, the another beer, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's just a rule to try to enforce. <laughs> and I also thought, I think they had a good time. I think fun was a big part of it. We did a lot of things that uh probably today you couldn't do but we we had a lot of fun and and I felt if I were with you guys I knew what they were doing. So Mm -hmm. I always went with them. Right. (laughs) So yeah. Uh and I think that concept, that theme of having fun was uh just throughout the book that was important.
0: Okay. Well I look forward to uh reading that sometime in the near future, I hope. But uh thank you so much, Coach Gould for your time today.
1: Well, David, thank you. No see no secrets. Just uh, work hard. And I think the biggest thing is we have a. This is such a great age group to be working with. You know, you, you think back to when you're 18, you do everything. You're on a wing first time. Really. You know everything, but you really don't know that much, you know. And, <laughs> and uh, we, as coaches, have a chance to work with these kids uh, when they're working them the first time, most of them. And it just is a tremendous opportunity. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: I think that uh, we can't remember why they're in school in the first place. They're not there to play tennis. They're there to learn something academically or help them later on in life. So we have to remember that and keep that in mind as well. Yeah, But a uh, really great opportunity. It's it, to me, it was a hobby and I was lucky to be a part of it. And mm-hmm. I think all of us are. And I think that we have a sacred, it's a sacred trust we have. Mm-hmm. And we have to have this opportunity, sacred opportunity. We have to uh, be representative of sport in that way and, and how sports we played. And it is sport. It is fun. It is a game in the long run. And, and let's keep it that way with our players
0: yeah no it's great great advice to leave our coaches with and, and thank you for, for your service to college tennis I know you, you said you, you wish you'd given more time to the ITA but I think we all recognize um, how much you've done for, for the sport of college tennis and, and uh, by putting Stanford on the map you're also putting college tennis on the map it, there's some great stories to tell from, from that program that will um, you know stand our sport um, you know during these difficult times and uh, and
1: yeah, it is a difficult time, but enjoy it and realize yeah. how lucky you are, and, and don't take things too seriously, and learn to laugh at yourself, and <laughs>
2: and,
1: uh, and and, and enjoy every minute of it because it's it's just really a, a, a great ride. I can't think, I can't imagine even doing other, anything other than coaching in college.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Well, thank you again, Coach Gould. Stay safe and be well.
1: Thanks, David. Appreciate it very much. Nice talking with well, you. You too. Bye bye.